Father, I ask this morning that your same desire for your people to be distinct would be what we live out and prioritize today in our church. Lord, you wanted there to be a clear distinction between Egypt and Israel so that your holiness would be put on display. I fear today's church is not distinct from the world enough. We have compromised in too many ways. And we, even ourselves, try to look more like the world, thinking that we can reach the world through worldly tactics. Forgive us, Lord, for not being distinct. Lord, I lift up this morning to you the Southern Baptist Convention, the denomination to which we belong as a church. Lord, it is a large umbrella of a denomination, and many churches within it, we would not agree with their methodologies. We know that the convention is meeting this week, in Birmingham, Alabama, and so we ask that your presence and spirit would be there at the convention, that you would send messengers to Alabama to represent you and your word, that you would give the leaders, especially J.D. Greer, the president right now, and, and all of the other leaders of the SBC, Lord, you give them great wisdom to, to make decisions and to steer the convention in a direction that is most pleasing to you. Lord, help us as a church know how we are to best relate to our other like-minded brothers and sisters in Baptist churches around the world. Lord, help us to not fall prey to the many, many harmful things that are happening in the Southern Baptist Convention, but help us to not be divisive either, to seek for unity and to seek to, to have a collective effort in missions, both here in America and abroad. Lord, use this convention, this entity, as a bridesmaid to your bride, the local church. And would you bless the convention this week. Lord, I pray for another SBC church, Foxworthy Baptist Church down the street. We know that this church was planted from us years ago, and we pray that this morning that you would enable Pastor Don there to preach the true gospel, that you would allow many to be converted and saved within that church, and you would bring visitors there, and that that church would, um, would undergo a, a true godly reformation, Lord, where um, disciples are made and membership is carried out in the spirit of your word. Bless that church and help us to love the people there um, and to, to share the word of Christ with them and encourage them um, that you might be pleased to that church. Um, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to call your attention this morning to Exodus 11. If you're not already open there in your Bibles, please open up to Exodus chapter 11. It is a shorter chapter this morning, but it is a packed one. It is very climactic. But it is also a threatening or a warning passage. So with that said, what is happening here is, is a warning or a preview of what's to come in more detail in chapters 12 and 13. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a high look at what God is doing in bringing the tenth and final plague, the plague of death upon Egypt. We might not hit on every detail in this passage, but know that if there is a verse or a phrase that is missed, it is only because it will be picked up in chapters 12 and 13. I'm not pulling a Thomas Jefferson on you and cutting through the text. So I want to draw your attention to this passage and remind you of what we've come to this point. At the end of this section, in verses 9 um, and 10, it says that these wonders, speaking of all the plagues, were conducted so that God's wonders would be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So I want to remind you of all of the plagues leading up to this one that have multiplied God's wonders. First, there was water that was turned to blood. Second was frogs. 
Third, gnats. Fourth, flies. Fifth, livestock, or more appropriately titled dead stock. Um, Six, boils. Seven, hail. Eight, locusts. Nine, darkness, we saw last week. And today we come upon the final and tenth plague, the plague of death. We don't have to look, look far to see death around us in our culture today. You could imagine the uproar and upheaval there would be in San Jose if the first nine of these plagues were to happen here. They would be all over the papers, they'd be all over the news, and I'm sure you would feel it. The boils would be on your skin too, and you would want to turn to God in repentance. You would want to seek refuge in the people of God. Now, while the first nine of these supernatural plagues are not happening in San Jose, what I want us to think about is that just like Egypt was the technological superpower of the world in that day, San Jose is the technological superpower in the world today. The same God who cast his judgment upon a nation that thought it was more powerful than God, God could cast that very same judgment upon us today as a city and as a nation. So we need to rightly hear this warning as a people and to say, say, God, how can I make sure I am part of your people? So while we might not see things like flies and frogs, we look around us and we definitely see the culmination of these plagues in full force, and that is the plague of death. Now, this is not the same type of plague that happened here, a one-night sweep of death that happened to all the firstborn in each family. No, we don't have that type of plague, but what we do have is a culture of death. We look around us and we see spiritual death everywhere. People who are redefining truth and rejecting the image of God that they were made in. We see physical death, Babies being ripped from their mother's wombs and aborted for the sake of convenience. We see euthanasia, people deciding to take their own lives because they want to. We also see the glorification of suicide as well, as especially in the teenage generation that these students are sometimes turning to suicide as a way to, um, to think that they can make a name for themselves. Brothers and sisters, death is inevitable. It is coming for all of us too. And we have to ask from ourselves and listen to this passage to see what does God say about the plague of death and about the consequences of death and how are we to escape it. This morning, I want us to hear this warning to Pharaoh and also hear this as a warning for us this morning. Two things I want you to take away is first, you need to heed these warnings of death. Heed the warning And what I also want you to see is that God is calling not only Pharaoh in Egypt, but he's calling you this morning to marvel at his wonders. You must marvel at the wonders of God this morning and as his glory is put on display through these plagues. We'll see this in three ways this morning. First, God's death warning. Why death? Why did God bring it? Second, we'll see God's distinct people. Our Our only hope and safety from death. And lastly, we'll see God's determined glory. And I'm not just talking about determined in the sense that God's trying hard to get glory, but determined in that it has been planned beforehand, and he will get glory. Amen? Amen. So in these three ways, we will see that we need to heed the warning of death ourselves and marvel at his wonders. Look with me at verses, um, at verses 4 and 5. 
Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. What we're told here is that God intends to bring death upon the firstborn of both, both the most powerful, the least significant, the girl, the slave girl behind the handmill, and even the cattle, that all the firstborn will be subject to this great plague. And this will allow Pharaoh to finally say, get out. Egypt will finally drive God's people out, even though his heart will remain hard. When did this take place? It would take place at midnight, the most vulnerable time of day. Unlike the other plagues, which were God mediating through physical means, that God enacted his judgment through frogs or through hail, we see this last plague, God will do himself. With his own hand, he, and also the destroyer will go, and he himself will personally put to death the firstborn of Egypt. This is not just sons in the houses, this is also the firstborn daughters too. In the next chapter, it says, There was not a house without someone dead. Firstborn sons and daughters. We hear in, in, in verse 6 that there was a great cry that went out when this happened. In the NIV, it translates that a loud wailing. That has never been heard before, nor will ever be heard again in Egypt. This great cry, brothers and sisters, was not from the sound of anguish of the firstborn dying, but this great cry came from the families discovering the dead at night. Imagine an Egyptian mother waking up in the middle of the night, going to get a drink of water, doing maybe what I do with my children, walking into the room, looking to see if they're still breathing, studying their beautiful faces, and going to find her firstborn child dead, not breathing. Any of you parents out here can probably agree with me that this is one of the most scary things that could ever happen to you. That one of your most valuable possessions in this world, your firstborn child, you, just, you go to check on them and they are dead. This is what happened in Egypt. In order for you to understand the horror of this scene and feel the weight of this passage, I want you to imagine how gut-wrenchingly horrific it would have been to be in Egypt at this time, to hear the domino effect of the first Egyptian parent discovering their child wailing uncontrollably and then their wailing waking up the houses adjacent to them you as a parent wake up to, to the hear of a great cry you wake up and go check on your child and your firstborn is dead you cry and then it's like a rippling domino effect that goes throughout the entire city thousands upon thousands of citizens were all awake in the dead of night sobbing and despondent I pray nothing like this ever happens to our city or to your children. Now the discerning and engaged reader of this passage will ask, why did God choose to bring death as the final plague? And why did it come upon all the firstborn and not just Pharaoh, who was the one with the hardened heart at this point? Even in the first few verses, it seems like a lot of Egypt is showing favor to Israel at this point. They're giving them their jewelry. Why is death? the selected choice of the final plague, and why is it coming upon the firstborn? Now, in the past sermons, Pastor Keith has explained thoroughly why the plagues at all, 
we've seen that it is God's act of judgment and it is right and just for him to bring plagues. What I want us to ask this morning is why death in particular? Now these are weighty and theological questions. The peace of the firstborn in particular we will save for chapter 12 in the coming sermon when it goes more into depth about what it meant that the firstborn were chosen. But for today, I want us to focus on just the concept of death in general. Why death? I want to give an answer at a few levels because God's purposes are multiplex. I'll address the theological, ethical, and grand purpose or the purposeful meaning and the reason behind why death was decided for the last plague. As Christians... Everyone in your neighborhood, all your family and friends are asking the same question. How can I escape death? Just like the death plague came to Egypt, a similar death plague will come for us all and it will come for the entire world. So we as Christians have to have a good answer for why death exists in this world and how we can escape it. Listen to the first reason. Theologically, we see that death was decided to be the final plague because it was a reverse of the creation order. With God, think about creation. He, in, his, in the triune Godhead, was full of life. God created light. He said, let there be light. And then he, then he created the earth, the heavens, and the seas, and he caused land to gather, and he caused vegetation to be on that land. So we have this flow of life leading to light, leading to vegetation. One, two, three. Now if you reverse that, as, as Pastor Keith brought up in the last few sermons with the locusts and the darkness, we see this creation order reversing, demonstrating that those who oppose God, those who willingly cut themselves off from the life source of this world, will have creation reversed upon them. The same way that life led to light, led to vegetation. The locusts took away vegetation. God took away the light and brought a darkness that was felt. And then finally, creation was completely reversed in the death plague. So theologically, God is demonstrating that when people cut themselves off from the life source and try to live in God's world against God, it will always lead to death. So we see that the plagues escalated time and time again, and Pharaoh proudly tried to defy the living God. So this is the theological result that was true for Pharaoh, and it is also true for your coworkers, and it is true for us as well if we do not submit to Christ. Theologically, you will die if you reject God and cut God out of your life. Now, you might be a Christian, and if you are grieving the Holy Spirit, then you will immediately feel the consequences of death spiritually in your life. You will be anxious. You will be proud. You will be angry. All of these, all of these components of spiritual death, these weeds will start to grow up in your heart if you turn from God. Second, ethically, why death? On one level, we must see that, um, just like with all the other plagues, this death was a just punishment for Pharaoh's disobedience and the nation of Egypt's mistreatment of God's people. So not only theologically, but ethically, it was the just punishment for Pharaoh and Egypt's mistreatment of God's people. Remember in chapters 1 and 2, how the Egyptians unjustly oppressed and killed the Israelites. 
Here, chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What's interesting is that the great cry that came out from the Israelites, because they were being oppressed, is the exact same Hebrew verb for the great cry and loud wailing that is coming out from the Egyptians when they noticed that their children had died. So what God is, is showing us is that he is, exacting an ex- he is doing an exact retribution upon Egypt that was put on his people. That the plagues were God's acts of justice and that the people that oppress God's elect will be punished for that. God remembered his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 13. Listen to this promise in the Abrahamic covenant that the Israelites were still under. Genesis 12, 13, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God has remembered his covenant to Abraham and he has promised to curse all of those who go against and oppose God's people. God will bring retribution and vengeance upon those who hurt, harm, and oppress his people. He has promised that. Now, before you say, now, now is that exactly just, I mean, oppression and making you work hard in the summer heat, making bricks, is that the same thing as killing all the firstborn? Well, maybe in our conception of justice, we might say, you know, this isn't exactly tooth for tooth. But there was certainly murder that was happening. I, don't forget about the sons that were thrown into the Nile and they were killed about the Isra- from the Israelites as well. I want your concept of justice not to be shaped by your experience or what you feel is just, but we as Christians need to have our justice shaped by the God of justice. And so therefore, any idea of justice you have in your life, of right and wrong, or when you read scripture, we must always take God's word at face value because any acts that he produces of justice are always a reflection of his character. So it is, we must conclude that God is just, ethically, to bring the curse of death upon the Egyptians. So not only theologically, ethically, but what is the telos, the grand purpose, or the end for which he is doing this plague of death? We'll see this in our last point of the sermon today, but I'll give you a little sneak preview here in verse 9. He brings death so that his wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. This is important for us to realize that God will receive glory and that God even brings about human disobedience and horrific things to bring himself in his name glory. That God is glorified through his mercy and he is also glorified through his wrath and his justice as well. And so we need to realize that death, not only in Egypt, but even death today, when God brings it about, he is glorified in life, and he's also glorified in death as well. He is never unjust or wrong. None of us deserve a day of life. All of us deserve death because of our sin. And so God is glorified in bringing an end and a stop to death, which was a result of sin, which has been messing up, his good creation order from the beginning. 
God's justice is on display. And so that is the grand purpose, and we'll explain that more in the last point. So for today, today I want us to think about, since we know the scripture is for all time, we realize that all those who proudly oppose God will surely die. This warning is repeated in the New Testament in Romans twelve thirteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will, replay, I will repay, says the Lord. So this isn't just an Old Testament, New Testament God thing, but God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And he's the same God who promises to bring vengeance. This was highlighted to me recently in a, a story I heard on YouTube from uh, famous preacher Paul Washer. He was in Peru doing missions work, stopping off to buy some Bibles, and he was pulled over, or he was um, uh, seen by some crooked cops. This, the crooked cops in Peru told him, get in your car. And they started screaming at him and yelling at him and telling him, telling him to show him their, his papers. And they were trying to place false charges upon Paul Washer, saying that your car is illegal and you, you should um, give us money and do what we say. They were even causing him to drive around for a while and threatening his life. During this time, Paul peacefully prayed and, and God gave him a peace that transcended all understanding. And the abductor said to Paul Washer, I'm, he said, why are you so calm? And, and Paul said, I'm very afraid. And the abductor, the Peruvian abductor said, oh yeah, you should be very afraid. And Paul said, no, no, I'm afraid for you. Because any minute now, you are going to die and go to hell because the Bible says that you are under a curse for opposing me. The, the Peruvian abductor started shaking and crying and asking Paul Washer to pray for him. And he did pray for him, He's, and God prayed for this man. Paul Washer prayed to God for this man. He said, God, this man is wicked, and you should kill him. But you are merciful, and he preached the gospel to him in his prayer. And he gave him his number, and he's in touch with him today. And so that was just a vivid demonstration to me that we still have a God of justice. And God will bring vengeance upon those who try to oppress his elect. Now, don't, make, don't mistake this for God being vengeful. Vengeful means getting back at someone for, for wrong reasons or, or being disproportionate in your justice. Also, don't take God's vengeance for being capricious, meaning that God um, just goes off the handle and has an uncontrolled temper. God isn't like either of those things, but his justice is perfect. Consider his patience in light of his ju- judgment in 2 Peter 3.9. You heard this. Kirk read this passage as well. That God is that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as someone should count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, our problem is that like Pharaoh, many of us don't appreciate God's patience. We don't think his grace is amazing, and we demonstrate that by not sharing the gospel with those who are currently under God's wrath. We also demonstrate that We don't appreciate God's patience toward us by grumbling about our daily material circumstances when really we should be dead and in hell because of our sin. This death plague should have come upon us a long time ago, brothers and sisters. So apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we are all enemies of God. You probably don't have to think back only a few hours, maybe a few days in your life to think about the many ways in which you fell short 
of the glory of Christ, that you sinned against God and did not love others as, as God has commanded you to love, that your thoughts and your motives were not as pure as God has called you to. Think about the ways that this week you even acted like Pharaoh and deserved to be judged as Pharaoh was. I'll name two. Discontentment and the byproduct of irritability. Discontentment and the byproduct of irritability. How often do we sin in our discontentment, wishing our circumstances were different or the difficult people and situations weren't before us? Just as Pharaoh wished that Moses would just go away and let him be God, how often does this work its way into your irritability that you get annoyed about little things and people who are seeking to bring God into your life or people that are going against your will, you thinking that you are a little G-God just like Pharaoh did? How often are you discontent in a sinful way or irritable or annoyed with those around you? It is not only sins like killing babies that bring God's judgment of death, but all heart-level sins like irritability and discontentment also violate God's law, deserving eternal death because they have violated an eternal lawgiver. This morning, will you heed God's warning? Will you heed God's warning? Remember, this passage is about warning Pharaoh, but the warning is also for us, brothers and sisters. Will you heed his warning? I pray so. You are right to then ask, where do we turn so that we can escape this plague of death that will come upon us all eventually? Our answer comes from the second point, God's distinct people. You'll notice that just like the other plagues, God's people here were immune. Therefore, we need to consider how we can make sure we are, we are part of God's people and immune from the death plague as well. Look with me at verse 7. Verse 7 says, This is in contrast to the loud wailing that was happening in the Egyptians. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In stark contrast to the loud wailing, we see that the Egyptian, the, the Israelites are given favor and are unscathed. Anyone who's owned a dog before, who has a neighbor who has a dog, knows how unlikely this statement is on human terms. That dogs are yappy, that they're loud, that even wild dogs in Egypt would have been barking. But God has shown such supernatural favor to his people that not even dog will growl at them at all. This favor doesn't extend only to the animals, but to the people as well. Verses 2 and 3 and 8 tell us about the favor that is upon God's people. That they have received so much supernatural favor that the Egyptians are willingly giving over their jewelry and treasure. That they are looking upon them, the people they used to look down upon and oppress, they are now looking upon them with favor. And in verse 8, even Pharaoh's servants are bowing down to Moses rather than their supposed God-man, Pharaoh. This is a complete reversal of the oppression that we saw at the beginning. And this can only be attributed to God's supernatural hand. God not only makes sure that his people have ample provisions for the long journey ahead by plundering the Egyptians, but he also causes the high-ranking officials to bow down before Moses. This gives us a glimpse into the, the reality that the bulk of the Egyptian population have seen now how crazy Pharaoh has become. 
and that his heart has become so hard that there's even a distance now between Egypt and their leader, that they are bowing down before Moses. Now, even though the Egyptians come to realize that Yahweh is a real God, this did not mean that they had trusted in him and had saving faith. They, they realized that Yahweh, because they've seen all the plagues, they, they've come to their senses and realized this, is, this Yahweh is real, he is true, but not in the sense that they have repented and believed and been saved. That they are still under Egypt and they still want to keep their pantheon of gods. And because Pharaoh represents his people, the same acts that the leader, the sin of the leader will also cause that the, the justice and the judgment of the sin to fall upon that leader's people as well. It's a tragic thing to see, brothers and sisters, and it should hopefully sober us up and remind us to pray for our leaders today as well, knowing that they represent us. Even though the Egyptians are, are bowing down before Moses, we see that many of them chase them out rather than go with them. Verse 7 makes clear that God conducted the plagues in order to show that there was a distinction, a, a very bold line between Egypt and Israel. Therefore, the, your only safety, and the only safety of an individual back then, was to be part of God's people, to be part of Israel. Our only safety today, brothers and sisters, is to be part of God's elect, to be part of his church, to be a sheep instead of a goat. The same division and distinction God wanted to show between Egypt and Israel, God wants to show between the unbelieving world and his believing saints in the church. If we recognize that we are sinners, just like Pharaoh, and that we are discontent and irritable and prideful just like he is, how can we be counted as one of God's people? There's hope, my beloved. This warning that went out to Pharaoh thousands of years ago warns us and everybody in our world today. If you heed the warning that death is coming and cry out to God, just as the Israelites did in their burdens, to weep and mourn, not only over your circumstances or over your, your fear of death, but to weep and mourn over your sin, it is then and only then that you will be able to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to take away your sin and receive God's death sentence upon, that was once over you and taken upon himself. It is when you repent of your sin, when you heed the warning and look on the Savior with not only utility, but if you look on him with wonder and worship and see him as the pearl of great price, it is then and only then that your sins can be taken away and that you can be counted as a member of true Israel, a person who is part of the family of God. Christ is able to rescue you from death because he being fully God and fully man, a greater mediator than Moses, was willingly crucified and he cried out with a loud cry. Hear his cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was experiencing the full wrath of God upon the cross 2,000 years ago that should have been poured out on you and me. Jesus took the true death plague upon himself. He cried out and wailed with a loud wailing that would have been even more horrific than the Egyptian parent finding their beloved child dead in their bed. Not only that, but the place where Jesus was crucified 
If, if you remember, it was called Golgotha, the place of a skull. It was outside the walls of Jerusalem. So if you envision the, the city walls of Jerusalem being a demarcation point, a bright line between the city of God and the, and, and the world outside, Jesus died a death outside the walls. Jesus was treated like an outsider, and the death plague was pronounced upon him just like an Egyptian outsider, so that you and I could be brought into the city of God, and through repentance and faith, be made a true, favored member of God's covenant people. The line is there, brothers and sisters. Where are you in that line? Which side are you on? Now, you can tell a tree by its fruit. Are you bearing fruit that leads to repentance and faith? Are you growing in your faith? And are you supplementing your faith with the godly virtues of knowledge, of brotherly affection, of, of Christ-likeness that's playing itself out in discipleship, in evangelism. If these things are not evident in your life, then you have reason to call into question which side of the fence you are on. Whether you are outside the, that, the wall, that demarcation, if you are still part of Egypt, or if you are counted as one of God's people. The good news is that even if you see that the fruit of your life is not good, that even this day, Jesus did not stay outside the city. Even though he was crucified outside the walls and treated as an outsider like an Egyptian, that the death plague came, came upon him, the death plague didn't remain upon him. But God raised his son Jesus from the death and seated him at the right hand in heaven, at his right hand in heaven, in a glorified physical body that would never be subject to the curse of death anymore. Isn't that good news? Jesus right now is the King of kings and Lord of lords, ruling over Donald Trump, ruling over all the dictators in the communist nations, ruling over even the richest CEOs in this valley. Jesus was not only more powerful than Pharaoh, but he's more powerful than the rulers and the politicians of this age as well. So whether this is the first time you've heard the good news or the 10,000th time, I want you to consider the tried and true form- formula of salvation through repentance and faith in a new light considering this passage. Use the descriptors of warning and wonder to help shed new light upon repentance and faith for you. Because repentance and faith is not only a one-time act, but it is the, the one-time act that takes place where you are justified and then you continue a life of growing in your 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 love for God, and that happens through continually repenting of your sin and having greater faith in Christ. I want you to consider that in terms of warning, that true repentance is always attached with hearing the warning of your sin, of how bad it could be, and that if you don't repent, death will come upon you if you make a practice of sin. And then I want faith. If you've heard the word faith so many times that it's become mundane to you, Add wonder to your faith. Remember that Jesus is not only useful. He's not only your get into heaven free card, but he is the savior of this world. And he is your creator. And he is the one that you were created for, to love and to know and to serve. Ask yourself this morning, how much awe, wonder, and amazement do you have for Jesus? 
How much wonder do you have for the Savior this morning? Romans 12, 15, and 16 tells us that every human to live has been properly warned. Listen to Romans 12, or 2, 15, not 12, 2, 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, that it's the Gentiles and everyone in the world, while their consciences also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So everyone has been warned. In chapter 11 here, we have a warning passage that goes out to Pharaoh. But even those who are not inside the church, even those who are part of the frontier peoples, a quarter of the world's population who haven't heard the gospel, their consciences, the fact that they are created in the image of God and that they see God's natural revelation, they know that they are condemned. Romans 2 tells us so. That their consciences either accuse them, they think, oh, I'm too bad to be saved, I am such a sinner and God can never save me, or it their consciences excuse them. They say, I'm not bad at all. I don't need a savior. I'm good, and I will be a religious person or do whatever I need to do to get my way, and I don't need God. We are all warned, and we who have heard the gospel week in and week out, you sitting in this church this morning, you have so much more responsibility because God has given you his word, rightly exegeted week in and week out. And so we are without excuse. We must heed the warning, not only to be saved, but also the warning to not play with the fire of sin that is dwelling within all our hearts as well. Do you take that warning seriously, brothers and sisters? I don't think we do. Hear the end of Romans 2. In verses 28 and 29, we're told that if we heed his warning, we can escape death and become of one of God's people. The best news ever. In Romans 2, verse 28, following, it says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What this tells us is that the same solution for Israel to escape the plague of death is your solution too. Become part of Israel. And what Romans 2 tells us is that becoming part of Israel doesn't mean taking a, a plane flight to Tel Aviv right now, but what it means is that you are a Jew inwardly in the heart if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, if you have repented and believed and had an internal regeneration, then God sees you as one of his covenant people. And it is there and only there that you will find safety from the death plague that will come upon you. Consider how you can think of death now if you are one of God's children in his covenant family. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This news is amazing that God's favor is open to people who are not only in ethnic Israel, 
but to people of all tribes and tongues and nations. God is willing to pour his favor upon and take away the sting of death so it is merely a shadow that you pass through and not a curse that that abides upon you forever. Don't you want to think about death that way? Don't you want your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers to think of death that way, to be part of God's people? This week, I met a young man named Joseph at the International Student Fellowship at De Anza. We commonly refer to it here as ISF. It's one of our outreaches. Joseph was, was such a sweet guy. He's from the Ivory Coast in West Africa. He's currently going to Foothill College, and even though he, he just came to the States, he walked on to their American football team. He learned from some of the American guys in the army that were stationed in the Ivory Coast, and he's, he's a very athletic, and so he's on the football team. He was telling me that he's going to Foothill to receive a major in political science, and his goal in life, what he wants to do is he wants to care for his mom. His mom had six kids, so Joseph has five siblings. The two oldest have already died in conflict in the Ivory Coast. He wants to provide for his mom, and he wants to protect her and do whatever he can to get a good, ed- good ed- education so that she can be cared for, and he can provide for her the same way that she's provided for him and her brothers and, has, and, and the strength that she's demonstrated even in the death of two of his siblings. I told Joseph, Joseph said he's Catholic, I told him that you are not guaranteed safety in this life, nor is your mom. But if you want to honor your mother, if you want to love her, and if that is your purpose, then you have a greater purpose, and that is to glorify God. And while you cannot be in the Ivory Coast right now to protect and and love your mom, what you can do is you can pray for her. And if your faith is in Christ and growing, and your mom's faith is truly in Christ, then while you are not guaranteed physical safety, you have an even better safety that is yours. That if you are counted as part of the people of God, that even if war breaks out in the Ivory Coast again, that he and his mom, if they've repented and and placed their faith in Christ, they can know that they have safety from the death plague, that they can be in heaven forever and be together. He thought that was great news, and he was very thankful for the time I spent with him. So you can pray for Joseph, and you can pray for his mom, and you can pray for the Ivory Coast and Christians and churches there as well. Pray that, as you hear a story like this, that we in America would never be lulled to sleep by the relative peace and ease that accompanies American Christianity. But you should be warned of the imminence of death in this world and fix your wonder on Christ rather than the passing things and the the hobbies and the entertainment that that America tries to distract us with. Be, Be encouraged and reminded by the warnings that are happening in other places like the Ivory Coast. Oftentimes, we do allow the world to fog our view of God and a right sense of wonder towards him. And so in our final point this morning, what I want to focus on is to clear the spiritual fog in all of our hearts so that the wonders of God that were multiplied in Egypt might also be multiplied in your heart this morning. Lastly, the last point, I want to see that God, through his warning of the death plague, he demonstrates his determined glory. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. 
Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. What we see here is that even through Pharaoh's rebellion, God uses his rebellion and places his judgment upon him so that so that his his wonders might be multiplied in Egypt. God will not be hindered in his sovereign purposes by Pharaoh's disobedience. In the heart which he has already hardened, God then hardens as well. As we saw from a previous passage with the boils, this hardening was a judicial act against someone who refused to submit to God and continued to go back on his word. Pharaoh now cannot obey God. He cannot obey God. What was the result of this? This catastrophic tragedy. Catastrophic tragedy hit Egypt. Death to countless of Egyptians and firstborn there ensued. And God's holy grace and justice was being broadcast throughout Egypt and the Middle Eastern world in that time. God's wonders were literally multiplied as he displayed not one, but ten supernatural judgments on the world's greatest superpower of that time. Do you think it's an accident that these plagues are still remembered and taught to the majority of the world today? No. God made sure his wonders would not only be broadcast all across the geographic land, but that his wonders would be multiplied and broadcast all throughout the corridors of time as well. God stands above creation, and he will receive glory through judgment and grace. And this same God who multiplies his wonders in human rebellion is also multiplying his wonders through human rebellion today. This is important, saints. I want you to listen to this. As you are people who hear the news, who hear what's going on, who, who think about our culture that looks like it's circling the drain right now, I want you to be freshly reminded that the same God who multiplied his wonders in human rebellion through Pharaoh is multiplying his wonders through human rebellion today. While God takes no pleasure at the perpetuation of evil and death, as we know in Habakkuk 1.13, which states, your eyes are too pure to approve or even look on evil, and you, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor, while God cannot even look on wickedness in favor and is not the author of sin, he is still a sovereign Lord who stands above creation and is not mocked whenever a baby is ripped from its mother's womb and aborted for the sake of convenience. Whenever evil is perpetuated today, God still gets glory through judgment. He still gets glory even when we think, could the evil not get any greater in this nation? God cannot look upon evil. He is too pure. And although we have not an easy explanation or understanding of a one-for-one correlation of how every loose end of evil is going to be tied up in the end, God promises and he shows us through Pharaoh that he will tie up every loose end. And not a scintilla of evil that occurs in life, not one evil motive or thought will, will go unpunished. But God's justice will be exacted and he will get glory through showing the whole panorama of his attributes, not only his love and his grace, but his wrath and his vengeance as well. 
And while we, we might, may not be able to see it from our vantage point, by looking at our perverted and sin-stained world through the lens of Scripture, we are reminded of the promise in Psalm 2. Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven, that's God, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The world has set itself against God, my friends. But God is actively bringing his death plague all around the world, spiritually and physically. And we are seeing his hand of grace removed and people getting the consequences of their actions at alarming rates where it looks like our society is in a free fall. Because this world that we're in today, like Pharaoh, is pridefully redefining truth and doing what it's right in its own eyes, all God has to do is remove his hand of common grace and give people what they want. And then they, they exact the death plague upon themselves. If we are honest with our own sin, we have at one point in our lives, we have pronounced death upon ourselves too, brothers and sisters. That at one point, we were following the prince of the power of the air, that just the same way that all of Egypt was culpable for their leader's sins, we all were born into sin, and we were following our leader, Satan's sins. We were going after our passions and doing whatever was right in our own eyes apart from Christ. And so we deserve this death plague too. But it is only because we've heard of the glorious news of the gospel. It is only because we have heard about the one who was willing to take the death plague upon himself on the cross that we can be counted, that you could be counted as one of spiritual Israel, that you can be safe in the Lamb. Your only refuge is Christ, the ruler over all, and those who are identified as his people in the church. And so ask yourself, are you not only residing in God's people, but do you have a right sense of, uh, of warning of, of sin? And do you have a right sense of wonder for God's works that he's multiplying all around us? Have you heeded the warning and are you looking at the Savior with wonder? If not, then that might call into question the validity of your repentance and faith if there is no sense of warning and wonder for the Savior. What is our reaction? What should our reaction be to the evil in Egypt and also the evil today? Ask yourself, how do you react to the news when you watch it? What goes on in your heart as you look around the culture of death that is sweeping through our nation? Where the idol of self is exalted and there is no such thing as truth. Where, where abortions are happening and people are taking their own lives. I pray that your response is like Moses's. Read the end of verse 8 with me. Put your eyes down onto your Bibles and look at the end of verse 8. Moses went out of the presence of Pharaoh for the last time before he would be told to leave for good. And how did Moses go out of the presence of Pharaoh? He did so in hot anger. How should we respond to the evil around us? To the 
to the vile death plague that is coming upon so, so many families in this nation, it should be with a righteous, hot anger. Moses' anger against Pharaoh was likely both a result of Pharaoh's death threat towards Moses in the previous chapter, and it was also likely his hot anger was a result of a, it was the, a righteous ex- exacerbation toward Pharaoh's wicked pride and thinking of the horrendous result of death that Moses knew would take place upon all those children in Egypt. Moses went out from Pharaoh's presence with a hot anger, rightfully so. There's an easy way for you sitting in your chair right now to test your heart to see if God's glory has caused you to wonder that you are standing in right awe, or if you allowed the fog of worldliness to obscure your view of God. There's a good way to test that right now. Ask yourself, when considering the obstinate pride of the world and the inevitable eternal death that will come upon billions who don't heed God's warning, do you ever respond in hot, righteous anger towards sin? as you see it ravage people created in the image of God around you and in the world. Secondly, ask yourself, do you respond with hot, righteous anger towards your own sin? How often do you ever have a visceral hatred for your sin? When is the last time that your emotions have been stirred by the truth of your sin in light of a holy God? Third way to test this, Do you ever prove your anger to be righteous by acting upon it in love? Do you ever prove your anger to be a righteous anger, not a sinful anger, by then taking that hot anger and acting upon it in love? I know this might sound weird, but consider how much Moses loved Pharaoh by bringing him this warning. Consider how much Moses loved Pharaoh. Church, if we are not righteously angry by the death that surrounds us, then we are not acting in love towards those who think they can rebel against God. Are you angry about abortion? Good. Pray, evangelize young moms, and take take steps toward adopting or fostering or supporting families that do. Is your righteous anger leading to love? Are you angry about the segregation and racism in our city? Then befriend someone from a different country. Love those in the body of Christ. Are you angry about the thought of one-fourth of the world living in frontier people groups who have almost no chance of hearing about Jesus from someone in their own people group? A quarter of the world's population that if they don't hear the gospel will die this this horrific death plague and spend an eternity having the worm that never stops eating and the smoke that will rise up forever. Does that cause you to have a hot anger when you think about this? And is that hot anger then multiplied when you hear about most American missionaries use their resources to send missionaries to places that already have the gospel? Good. Pray support financially and go yourself in obedience. You go. I could go on. If you are never righteously angry out of a genuine desire for God's will to be done, not your own, 
be very clear here. I'm not talking about you getting angry at someone cutting you off in traffic. If you are ever righteously angry, if you are never, rather, righteously angry about God's will on earth not being done as, as he desires it over these sin issues, or if you even are bristling at the thought of God's justice, then it might mean that you are hardening your, hardening your heart just like Pharaoh did, and it might be just a matter of time until the death plague comes upon you too. If you are never righteously angry, and if you don't like the idea of God's justice, then it might mean that you are hardening your heart. Don't gamble with your soul. Heed this warning, repent of your sin, and bow to Christ today before God hardens your heart. Know that God has determined from the beginning of time that his wonders would be multiplied, not only around the world, but throughout time. And that he will be glorified in the salvation of his people and in the judgment of Israel, or in the judgment of all evil outside of Israel. If you are walking with God and you have heeded the death warning for your sin and you're standing in awe and wonder of Jesus, then take this moment to thank God for his unmerited favor towards you. Seriously, take this moment. If you have properly been warned of your sin and God has poured his favor upon you, it's not because of anything good you did. Take this moment to thank God. Then surrender your life to him and ask him to be used as a broadcaster of his warnings and wonders that he might use you to rescue people from underneath the slavery of death. And take heart knowing that the promised land is not far off for you, but heaven will be yours soon as you pass not through the plague of death, but through the shadow of death, or when Christ comes again. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for being lulled to sleep by all the things of this world that distract us. Forgive us, God, for not thinking the death plague is that serious. For taking the great plagues like the gnats and the Nile that was turned to blood and for relegating them to a cartoony Sunday school lesson and not thinking of how horrendous it would have been for that culture. Lord, help us to, to feel how horrific it would have been for the Egyptian mom to go and discover her firstborn son dead in his bed. Lord, we don't want that for our children. We don't want that for anyone. We know that safety is only found in the cross of Jesus Christ. So grant us favor this morning. Grant us a repentance that is a response to your warning of the death plague and give us a faith that isn't a dead faith, but a faith that produces wonder upon wonder that we may be in awe of you and stirred to right action. Father, I pray that you would not remove your hand of grace from this nation in America either or around the world, but I pray that you would that you would help Donald Trump, that you would help our leaders, that you would help even the Southern Baptist Convention this week make decisions that are righteous and that allow for flourishing in this country and freedom to share the gospel. Father, we know that revival and awakening is not, behind, not beyond you, so do that great work. May you even take the prayers of this church to start that process. We thank you for your grace and your favor in Jesus' name. Amen.